Hi, this is the Zane Lowe Interviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm Zane Lowe. Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Taylor Swift is Apple Music Songwriter of the Year 2020. This award was handed out to Taylor at the time we only had folklore to judge the songwriting of the last 12 months on, although to be fair, you know, she's a master songwriter and has been from day dot, but we were focusing on that one record. And then, of course, we got a surprise record at the end of the year as well, a companion piece called Evermore to go alongside it. Both albums, incredible examples of Taylor Swift's amazing ability to write songs, but different than the previous decade, which felt a lot more from a first-person POV, you know, addressing the challenges, the controversies, the heartache, the love, all the things that would spring to mind when you think of 2010 to 2020 as a Taylor Swift fan. So she starts the new decade, like the rest of the world, in quarantine, off the road, the whole machine slowing down, reaches for her guitar, and this is what comes out. These songs, inspired by stories, not just personal, but but told and read, gave her a much wider canvas upon which to paint, and she used that canvas masterfully. She brought us into this world of in-between seasons, intimate yet isolated in the middle of nowhere, cabins, forests, great lakes, and just leaned into her craft which is why these two albums ladder up to one of our most prestigious awards here at Apple Music, the Songwriter of the Year, and this, our latest conversation. Myself and Taylor Swift finishing 2020, diving into the world of folklore and ever more. Enjoy it. Thanks for checking it out on the interview series. Taylor Swift is Apple Music Songwriter of the Year for 2020. Congratulations and thank you for bringing us not one but two incredible albums this year. These records just steeped in imagery and escapism and romance and heartache and just remarkable examples of you as, as a songwriter we've always known, but masterclass stuff. So thanks so much for showing up twice this year, Taylor. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing. We just put out Evermore uh, yesterday. So I'm, I'm in this state of like exhaustion, but relief, but very proud. So I was going to ask you actually how it feels because, I mean, you've done this, you know, a few times now, working up the morning after a record's finally come out. And I think as fans, we all know the effort and the energy that you put into not just writing the songs and getting them complete, but preparing the release of the music and ensuring that we're as engaged as possible. So when it's all out and about and that whole process finally kind of comes to an end for the time being, how do you feel the next morning? Are you are you well rested? Is the energy too intense? What's the, what's the situation? I feel differently today than I felt the day after releasing Folklore because... Even the day after releasing Folklore, Aaron and I were still bouncing ideas back and forth. And and we just knew we were going to keep writing music. I didn't know if it was for an album of mine or um, Aaron and Justin Vernon have a really amazing project called Big Red Machine. So we kept writing thinking maybe we were going to do some Big big Red Machine stuff. But the things that we ended up writing really sounded more like more like a continuation of Folklore. So when I put out Folklore, I remember just feeling so proud and happy, but still like foot on the gas. Like, let's keep, let's keep going. This is fun. I'm not finished with this. And everybody, all my collaborators, um, we all felt the same way about it. So we just kept going with this one. I have this feeling of, of sort of quiet conclusion and sort of this weird serenity of like, we did what we did, what we set out to do. And we're all really proud of it. And that feels really, really nice. I'm not surprised because I feel like the stories, to some degree, there's some conclusion in this in this album too, from where you began on folklore. And there's so much closure on this new record. And I want to dive into aspects of that. And I just feel like the future must feel wide open to you right now. But 
I want to refer back to the Long Pond Sessions, you know, and Jack Antonoff said something really poignant, which was, I've never made an album like this. I don't know if I ever will again. Yes. And in your mind and in your heart, you knew you wanted to carry on and there was music to be done. But it felt like for others, assuming that Jack was genuine because he's an honest human, he wasn't sure there would be an evermore or a chance to work like this again. Was there a sort of a melancholy to the end of folklore? Not really. I was just so happy that my world felt opened up creatively. Um, there was a point where I, that I got to as a writer who only wrote very diaristic songs that I felt it was unsustainable from, from my future moving forward. It yeah. felt like too hot of a microscope. It felt a bit like I was just, I was like, why am I just like, if I'm writing about my life and all it is, at, at, on my bad days, I would feel like I was loading a cannon of clickbait when that's not what I want for my life. Um, and I think that when when I put out Folklore, I felt like if I can do this, this thing where I get to create characters in this mythological American town or wherever I imagine them, and I can reflect my own emotions onto what I think they might be feeling, and I can create stories and characters and arcs and all this stuff, but I don't have to have it feel like when I put out an album, I'm just like, giving tabloids ammunition and stuff. Yeah, there's so much judgment that would come along with every record. Yeah, and constantly kind of like um, examining yourself in a way that feels like, I felt like there would be a point in my life where I could no longer really do that and and still maintain um, a place of like good mental health and emotional health and all that. So what I felt after we put out Folklore was like, oh, wow, people people are into this too, this thing that feels really do good this. for my life and feels yeah. really good for my creativity. It There's feels a really way good out. for them too. Oh my God. <laughs> um, I, I saw, I saw a lane, I saw a lane for my future that I, I, it was a real breakthrough moment of excitement and happiness. And I kind of referred to writing these songs as a flotation device because um, obviously this year is, is hell on earth for everyone. And seeing what your fellow humans are going through. The Long Pond Studio Sessions was the first time that Jack, Aaron, and I were in the same room. And I still haven't been in the same room with Justin Vernon, who has now collaborated on two albums heavily and we've talked, but we're just, we've just never been in the same space together. It's pretty wild. Yeah, how was that experience when you first caught up together and saw each other having made this amazing body of work? Because we saw it on camera. There was this giddiness and this idea of like, wow, we did it, we made it. Now we can celebrate it and make it real to some degree. But what was going on behind the camera? That's what I, I think we all want to know is when you all first saw each other before the cameras <laughs> rolled, what was happening then? Because that's a truly human experience that I don't think you or anyone has ever been through before where the stakes were so high for remote recording and then you all come together and it's like, wow, how do we even translate this? It, it was such a strange thing because we'd been on, you know, group chats and it, it just wasn't, it wasn't ever the combination yet. So the combination of the three of us was like this strange feeling of, I, I remember I walked into the studio, they were already rehearsing and I walked in and it was just like they were a band. It It didn't, it wasn't that feeling of awkwardness between them because I guess they'd had their moment. I walked in and I heard them playing August or something and I was just sitting there thinking, this is exactly how I would have wanted it. I would have wanted this, you know, reunion or union at all to happen in a moment of me walking in on them creating music and and rehearsing and playing instruments. And and it just, I just started rehearsing too and it was such a vibe. Um, and it, it couldn't really have been 
I couldn't have asked for more under the circumstances. You know, it's so fun to make a record when you've got people in the room and you've got that energy that's bouncing off the walls. But if you can't do that, this was a pretty close second. Yeah, I mean, no one's been able to do that. Very rarely have people been able to get into a room and get that tactility and that chemistry that we all, I guess, to some degree became so accustomed to. And, you know, I think about this year, you talked about it and you you, you put it in the perfect framework. Um, but it's also taught us a lot about stillness and what it is to be still and what it is to reflect and to be comfortable in our own skin. And I think human beings by nature search for coping mechanisms and distractions to avoid that. And in your case, I've, I've always yep. felt that you've moved so fast. And even if you've taken some time between projects, it's clear you're working on things all the time. You know, what has this process of working on folklore and Evermore, busy year for you as a songwriter, but also has it taught you something about stillness and has it altered your attitude toward pace and productivity and what motivates you? Yes, it, it has changed everything about the way that I do what I do. Um, it gave me a perspective of, you know, I was, I was pretty upset when my shows all got canceled and I realized I wasn't going to be able to connect with my fans in the way that I'm traditionally used to. Um, just a no normal human interaction I couldn't do anymore, you know? Um, Especially after an album like Lover, which is just like such a communal, joyous experience. I can imagine it's like, wow, I'm going to get to bring this to life, you know? Yeah, and I, th I think we all felt that way. I think the fans felt that way too, where we were we were just sitting there going, wow, that would have been, that would I think that would have been fun. Um, but what it did was, you know, when you plan a live show, I guess at least when I do it, I'm I'm writing interstitial music. I'm planning... Um, this set piece goes off while this goes on, while we distract them over here. And this, this song calls for this and this song calls for that. And that's all creating. And I don't think I really assigned very much merit to the fact that that is creating. When you're taking music you've already made and an album that you've already made and you're choreographing and you are set, you're setting up a live spectacle that is taking up so much emotional, creative, and imaginary and imagination-based bandwidth in your brain. So if you take all of that away, what happens? And and I guess I I learned that it's very possible for me to write more music with that creative bandwidth. Um, as musicians, we're so used to immediately touring, immediately putting together the show, immediately going into rehearsals, and then we always feel that we need a pretty big break or at least a significant gap of time where we get to rest afterward. And I guess I learned that when we're on the road, it's not just that we're sweating and we're and we're meeting a million people and we're we have all this back and forth of of just energy of meeting this person, getting us <laughs> trying to get a surprise guest to surprise the crowd and and all this stuff that happens um, on tour. It's also the creation of the show itself that is taking up a lot of a lot of your your brain space. So without that, um, this just happened naturally on its own. Is there a dysfunction to that? Do you think looking back on it now, is there a correlation between some of the kind of more hard to manage parts of your life and the pace at which things go and 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 how careers become the you know these kind of entities unto themselves? Yes and no. I think that. Um, Looking back on my career, there have been so many different musical phases and, you know, different things I wanted to wear at different times. And they fit my life at the time. Um, and and so I think that you've got to allow yourself that grace to 
put on a certain lifestyle or a certain outfit or a certain creative uh, mantra and then discard it when it when you outgrow it. This is this was weird though because this Evermore was the first time I didn't discard everything after I made something new. You know, it was weird. I actually had to kind of fight off anxiety that I had in my head, like fear that was like, you need to change. <laughs> like, yeah. like the demons yeah. are here. Like you need to change. You can't. You can't stay in the forest. I was like, I want to stay in the forest. But the forest is such a weird place because when you were a kid, and, and I think aesthetically, that's a big part, a, a, a significant part of what's made this so um, immersive. This experience is that that idea of stepping into the unknown. And when you're a kid, like this idea of wide open water is really scary, not knowing what's underneath. Being out in a forest and looking directly into trees that could go on forever, you know, is kind of an intimidating type of image. And yet you made it feel like something that was intimate, like you wanted to go into that. How did that kind of relate to the music? Because it's such an essential part of these two albums, the way that it looks and feels. I think that working with Aaron, the music that we were making, um, he was writing instrumentals and I was writing the the melodies and the lyrics. And what ended up happening was I think we just gravitated towards what both of us simultaneously felt made us feel cozy, which was nature. You know, so many people during the pandemic just were going on hikes and trying to get outside because it was, nature symbolized this strange comfort all of a sudden where um, where we, everything was completely off kilter and nobody could really figure out how to get their bearings. And so we all went outside or we all tried to go camping or tried to go hiking or um, go on drives. And it just, I think that Aaron's music and my music both reflected sort of that feel with Aaron, such an amazing instrumentalist and his, his instrumentals that he was writing were all very um, kind of dreamscapes. And so it's not that this album is all about like the forest and the woods and stuff. It's got hints of that. And there's a lot of um, kind of the lyric. I, one thing I wanted to do with folklore is I wanted it to represent spring and summer. Um, and when I made Evermore, I knew that I wanted to fill in the rest of the seasons of the year and have it reflect fall and winter. So that's another element that nature came into it. But also it was the easiest way that we could do a photo shoot. You know, you can't, you can't have, I haven't had a haircut um, by anyone I, except for myself since lockdown started. And uh, that's kind of how it's been, you know, like how can I make, how can I make art and make visuals that go with this art where I, I can't, I can't ask my hair and makeup people and my stylist to quarantine for two weeks away from their families. I'm not going to ask them to do that. Like, and, and ask them to fly and, and, expose themselves to the virus. So what, how can I possibly make a cover on my own? Could I just sort of DIY this? Um, <laughs> so I asked, um, you know, I asked my friends if I could use their field and their woods. And um, I used a photographer who works alone. She doesn't have assistance. She shoots on film. So we were carrying bags of film out in fields. And I'd be like, you know, touching up my like, my lipstick and and then I'd run out into a field and she'd take pictures. It was, it was really fun, honestly. I was going to say, you know, it, it must have been really amazing as a songwriter too. I, I was thinking about these two albums in relation to your career and how in a weird way, and I don't mean this in any relation to the, in any negative reaction to your previous albums because you know how I feel, but the process itself of writing songs from a very pure place with no plans. 
because yes. you make your debut album with nothing but ambition. That's a plan. That's a big plan. And then from there, the plans start to increase and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And to your point, you're looking for the next plan. I just don't feel like there were any plans here. Did it, did it feel like you could get to a pure place this year without all those plans? Yes, it, it did. Pure is a really, really perfect word for that. Um, because what happens to you as your career builds and builds and builds and builds is that if you've accomplished a thing in the past, all of a sudden you're, you're expected to accomplish that thing plus another new thing plus this other thing over here. There, It becomes sort of like I had felt at times when I felt a lot of pressure, I had felt like I was doing some sort of like obstacle course. Um, and, and that's not how you should feel when you're creating. You know, you shouldn't feel like I need to make a track list where... <laughs> This one's for the stadium show. This one's for radio. This one's for check. people who want to get in their feelings. Check. check, check, check. And you you can end up doing you can end up doing that. Um, and it's good to have friends who are artists who have similar pressures. Like like Ed Sheeran and I talk about this a great deal. This was a time when we both stepped back, and I would say to him, "This is the first time I felt like I threw the checklist away. Like there, I, I threw it away, and I definitely could have gone into the pandemic." thinking I've got to wait for everything to open up so I can do things exactly the way that I'm used to doing them. But then about three days in, I thought, wait, this could be an opportunity to, for me to do things in a way I haven't ever done them before. What would my work sound like if I took away all of my fear-based checklisting that I have inflicted on myself? Wow. So I That's guess huge. you know the answer now. <laughs> yeah. To me, there's an interesting correlation here between these two albums and this idea of getting into a pure space, the freedom and the space, space being another key word to this, um, and the idea of going back and, and re-recording your music. Do you see a correlation between reflecting the person you've been and becoming the person you want to, that, that you are and are going to be? Wow, there's a lot to unpack there, um, but it does resonate with me a lot because I was I was allowed to start re-recording my music in November. By then, we had a great deal of Evermore um, done. I, I had shot a music video for Willow, but I was still writing and I was still recording. So there would be days where I'd be recording, um, I'd be recording You Belong With Me, and then I'd be recording a song like Happiness, which is on Evermore. And wow. it made me feel really proud of sort of um, the scope of things and... Looking back, when I was a teenager and I would write about, you know, my my troubles in high school and the drama and the pining away and all that stuff, that was all so valid to me at that time in my life. Just as much as Evermore is so valid to, to my happiness at this time in my life. Um, so it's been really, I've really felt very grateful lately for people giving me the ability to grow up creatively. And I know there have been snags and there have been times where people have been like, I don't like her, several times. But for the most part, I feel a great amount of gratitude that I was able to make music from the time I was a teenager to the time that I'm 31. <laughs> and normally, you know, you, well, you put those songs out and then you have to let them go. And even when you perform them in front of people, they, it, I often feel like they, they belong more to the fans and to the audience sometimes than they even do to the artists, you know? And getting a chance to re-record them for whatever reason, whatever, whatever prompted this thing, 
the fact that you get to go and listen to these and re-record them, I wonder if it may, if it brings you closer to them and changes your feelings towards songs that often people just record and move on from. Don't even listen to again as artists unless they're playing them. Yes, it does. It, it makes me feel really close to those songs again. And it also reminds me that obviously I, I want to keep a lot of cool surprises for the fans um, until I'm ready to show them fully to everyone. But the reason that I feel so passionately that artists should own their catalogs is because if you are the creator of all of this music, you're the only one who actually knows the ins and the outs of it. You're the only one who knows what almost was written. You're the only one who knows the kind of secrets of the journey of making this music. So you're actually the only one who has the ability to share it with the fans in the way that that um, can make everyone the happiest and the most excited. So it's been it's been really fulfilling in a way that I, I, I had no idea what to expect. You don't want to feel like it's um, like, you know, your homework got destroyed and so now you have to redo your homework. It's not like that at all. Yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's not like You've that. You've got to go into it like this fulfilling. is an opportunity. And also, you know, yeah. you talked about artists owning their catalog and, and I, I've been talking to artists for most of my life. And there's one thing that continues to crop up. And I think that, you know, your perspective would be really, really interesting here, which is why do you think that as artists, we put security and stability before artistic control and freedom as young artists? We don't make that conscious decision. We aren't given the information oftentimes. And that's why I'm having lots of conversations behind the scenes with record labels and trying to help them understand this from, from a psychological perspective, what you do to an artist when you separate them from their work. Um, you break something. And and I'm trying to figure out how to put that thing back together in a way that heals what was broken by a system that is not designed for artists to um, have have a chance at, you know, a, that's, a, that's an artist's pension plan. That's their retirement. That's their legacy. That's what they want to leave to their children. And how could you ever know? How could you ever know the life you're going to live? How could you ever know what's going to happen, right? A, a coming of age has come and gone, right? How could you ever know that? Yeah, good quote. But yeah, I was I was a I was 15, 14 when I was in record deal talks, record deal negotiations, so you can't really go back and say, "Wow, this was a what a conscious choice that was made." You just you don't know um the music industry until you know it. And and because I have learned what I've learned, I really just want to make things better for other people, and I want that to start at the at the record deal in the contract. Artists should never have to part with their work. They should they should own it from day one, but they should license it back to the label so that the label can make back their money over a certain amount of time. And that that amount of time should be what's negotiated upon. It should not be a question moving forward. And and if I can if I can do anything to change that for a young artist in the future or many or all of them, then that's you know I'm going to keep keep being loud about it. It's an incredible observation at, at a. Brilliant age to come to come to that. Um, and at the time of recording, your birthday's in a couple of days. By the time this is seen, it's probably yeah. about 24 hours ago to protect myself from the Swifties. <laughs> I got to say happy birthday, even though you haven't had your birthday. You. It's all very Thank DeLorean you. kind of nightmare for me right now. I'm in some back to the future vortex. But anyway, happy birthday. Thank you. I wanted to talk about this album and the word I mentioned at the beginning, closure. Is, is something that keeps coming up on Evermore for me as a listener yes. and a fan of your music. But it's got to start somewhere. The album and the journey has to start somewhere. And it starts with Willow. 
And it's, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't often ask this question. I wish I did. Why is that the first song on the album? And you're the artist to ask it to, Taylor, because it's definitely a reason. I liked opening the album with that because I loved the feeling that I got immediately upon hearing the instrumental that Aaron created for it. It felt strangely, I, I, I say witchy, and I stand by that. It felt like somebody standing over a potion, making a love potion, dreaming up the person that they want and the person they desire and trying to figure out how to get that person in their life. And all the kind of misdirection and bait and switch and comp like complexity that goes into seeing someone, feeling a connection, wanting them and trying to make them a part of your life. It's um it it it's tactical at times, it's confusing at times. Um totally. it's up to fate, it's magical. It's called manifestation. It's That's how human yes. beings actually make sense yes. of it. It's we're manifesting, but it's something else. It's something else. Yeah. It's a whole combination of all of it. Yeah, it felt it felt a bit magical and mysterious, which is what I wanted people to feel going into an album that was a collection of these stories um, that were going to take them in all kinds of directions. So I wanted to start them with sort of a, a setting of the vibe. But what you say about closure is really, really profound because with folklore, I uh, one of the main themes throughout that was conflict resolution, right? Like trying to figure out how to get through something with someone or making confessions or trying to tell them something, trying to communicate with them. Evermore deals a lot in endings of all sorts, shapes and sizes, all the kinds of ways we can end um, a relationship, a friendship, um, something toxic, and 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 the, the pain that goes along with that, the phases of it. Um, so it's cool that you notice that. I mean, it opens up so many possibilities for you as a writer once you know you get to a point where you feel you don't have to stick to that linear narrative. And it's it's a very brilliant narrative, but the idea of like, I love you, we fell out, we broke up, you know, there's pain, there's there's joy. When you start to look at all the other open endings and you go deeper, and you, it requires some real character analysis and development in order to do that successfully because you kind of lived all those lives, but you might have learned a thing or two about your own by doing so. Have there been moments during writing of these albums where you've learned things about yourself that you would never have learned if you'd been focused on that specific emotional feeling? Absolutely. Absolutely, because um, when you watch a film or you read a book and there's a character that you identify with, you most of the time identify with them because they're they're targeting something in you that feels that you've been there. Um, you re- that's why we relate to characters. And so um, when I'm when I was reading, you know, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and I was thinking, um, wow, her husband just tolerates her. She's she's doing all these things, and she's trying so hard, and she's trying to impress him, and he's just tolerating her the whole time. There was a part of me that was, you know relating to that because at some point in my life I felt that way. And so I ended up writing this song, Tolerate It, that's all about sort of trying to love someone who's ambivalent. (laughs) Thank you. It's unreal. Thank you so much. And I mean, even a song like Champagne Problems, all right, let's talk about that. There's unrequited love. That's a well-written topic in the the arts. But then there's that song. That song, (laughs) that is one of the most heartbreaking tales of unrequited (laughs) love I've ever heard in my entire life. And it shouldn't be written by somebody who is honestly (laughs) and obviously very much in love. So I don't know how you got there. 
Well, Joe and I really love sad songs. We've always bonded over music, so it was clearly you've written some of the saddest songs of your career we together. Write the What's going on? Songs. We just really love sad songs. What can I say? Um, he he started that one and came up with the uh, melodic structure of it. And um, I say it was a surprise that we started writing together, but in a way it wasn't because we have always bonded over music and had the same musical tastes. And he's always the person who's showing me songs by, by artists. And I'm then, then they, they become my favorite songs or whatever. But um, yeah, Champagne Problems was, that was one of my favorite bridges to write. I really love um, a bridge where you tell the full story in the bridge. Like you really like, you shift gears in that bridge. I'm so excited to one day be in front of a crowd when they all sing, she would have made such a lovely bride. What a shame she's oh. in the head. Like, yeah, it's broken. Because I know it's so sad. I know it's yeah. so sad, but it's those songs like All Too Well. Performing the song All Too Well is one of the most joyful experiences I ever go through when I perform live. So when there's a song like Champagne Problems where you know it's so sad, you know that, but I, I, I love a sad song, you know? What's it like when you're walking through the house and you hear the piano being played and music being written, and maybe for the first time ever, it's not you, yeah. it's someone else. <gasps> Well, he doesn't think of it that way. You know, he's always just playing instruments and he doesn't do it in a strategic, I'm writing a song right now thing. He's always done that. But I do, do I think we would have taken the step of, hey, let's see if there's, an, there's a song in here. Let's write a song together. If we hadn't been in lockdown, uh, I don't think that would have happened. And I'm so glad that it did. He's been a part of some of the most sort of powerful moments on these records in terms of songwriting. Yep. <laughs> like, Exile is no joke. Like that song is a serious, serious moment and another seriously sad song. It is. It is. We're so proud of that one. Um, also because I, I do remember the exact moment that I walked in and he was playing that exact piano part. Um, and all I had to do was follow the piano melody with the verse melody. So, cause the vocal melody is exactly the same, pretty much. It's mirrored with the piano part that he wrote. And we did the same thing with Evermore, where I'll just kind of hear what he's doing and it's exactly, it's all there. All I have to do is dream up some lyrics and come up with some gut-wrenching, heart-shattering story to, to write with him. <laughs> So here's the question then. You're Joe and you and you play music because you love it and you have passions in the arts in all kinds of places. And I would ask him this if I saw him, but I can't. <laughs> so I'll ask you. Then you come up with a song like Exile and Justin Vernon is singing it with you. Has he expressed to you how that feels for him to just be expressing himself and the next thing you know, Bonnie Ver? and yourself are bringing this song to life because you always wanted that in your life. But for him, it's just been this organic thing. Folklore and Evermore include our favorite artists. So it's, you know, we've always listened to Bonnie Bear, The National. So it's a big deal for you. It's a huge deal. And, and you've probably been trying to pluck up the courage to get into the studio with Justin Vernon subconsciously or consciously for a long time. But for him, it's like, how does this happen? I never would have imagined that Justin would be would dive into this project or any project with me like this because Justin has his own musical world and his own 
sort of, in my mind, it was this impenetrable force field of brilliance that he he cultivates talent from everywhere. He he operates out of Eau Claire. I, I never knew how I would ever get in contact with Justin Vernon. My in was that Aaron Dessner, who produced these albums and wrote with me, um, is his best friend. I mean, they are, they are like, they have a connection. They they would do anything for each other. Like they would do anything to support each other's projects. It's really, really sweet and pure and lovely. Their their love and and uh, respect for each other. So he said to me when I when I sent him Exile, um, he said to me, I think, I think Justin would be into this. I think he would be into this. And I said, I said, this will break my heart if he doesn't want to because. My my biggest anxieties say to me, the artists that you love will never will never love you too. <laughs> so so um, it was just a really huge moment, just all around, all around, really good moment when he wanted to be a part of it. And then he, when we went in to make Evermore, what shocked me too was that Justin leaned in. You know, he's playing the lead guitar solo on Cowboy Like Me. He's playing the drums on that song. He's playing drums on Closure. He's singing background vocals on Ivy and Marjorie. Sorry, I didn't know I had a home phone, but apparently <laughs> I Until somebody called it. You probably didn't even know your number. <laughs> it's actually really good to learn that today. Um, but, but Justin Vernon working so... Um, just so naturally and so enthusiastically on Evermore was a really cool turn of events because I feel truly, truly honored. Um, and I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. I know it's so weird, but you know, <laughs> perfectly, perfectly in keeping with this year. Okay. So, yeah. So here's a question. Up until this year, even through your collaborative stages, and you've been working with Jack now for a while and you have a really strong group of artists and friends around you all the time, but there's always this sense that it's Taylor's vision. Taylor's on track. You're in control. You've got this. This idea of you having to kind of forge ahead on your own terms. And here you are on a song like Exile with your significant other involved in the creative process and your hero involved in the creative process. I was listening to that song and I thought, wow, you must have felt protected. You must have actually felt really wrapped up in that moment. And, and was it emotional? And did it did that resonate with you that like, wow, like, I'm good? I, I actually don't think that I believed that this song would exist in the world because in my head, that doesn't that wasn't going to happen. I'd never wanted to get too invested in it because I always wanted Justin to be able to say at the last minute, hey, I don't want to be on the record you know, and I wanted that to be okay with me, you know. So I actually did not assign too much. I didn't fuse myself to the idea that this was real until the album was actually out. And I remember just like going on drives and listening to Exile thinking, oh, it happened. This song got made, it got finished, it got put out into the world, and we're all happy about it. And people are listening to it. Like it was sort of... I don't mind, I don't mean to seem so like aw shucks about it, but it really, I didn't want to get my heart broken. You know, people can change their minds about things. I get it. But then when he goes, so step right out and, and he gets, and he does that oh, Justin Vernon thing. That was, that was the moment. Cause he, when he added that part, that was the moment that sent me into the universe with, without any chance of returning. Um, because 
he, 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 we had written up to that point and he added that. And so when we got the recording back, we had no idea what he was going to do. And when we heard that part, it was just like hands on face, faces melting. Everything is, everything is made out of confetti. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. Um, <laughs> yeah. One story that, that, that really stood out um, when we were watching the Long Pond Sessions was the one about August and the idea of that song coming from that line, Meet Me Behind the Mall, and that you'd had that line for a long time. How long had you had that line for? Uh, it was about six months old, probably. You're collecting ideas and things all the time, right? I mean, you've got to be just absorbing and drawing inspiration and writing, jotting and, 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 and ideating. Um, how do you sort of catalog and, and how do you make sense of that? And do you draw upon those things often? Do you reflect into your own space to create something new? Yes, whenever I, because I really love um, a turn of a phrase or play on words or common phrases and you twist something. Um, another one that I had had for a very long time, I think I'd had this one for a couple of years, was um, the knife cuts both ways. If the shoe fits, walk in it till your high heels break. Those are my favorite kind of things to do. So if I think of one, but I don't have a song at the moment, I write it down and, and I keep a file of, um, I also have a, a folder of favorite words. So it's, I have favorite phrases, favorite words, favorite lines that I think could just fit somewhere. What are some of your favorite words, top of your head? Oh, top of my head. Well, epiphany on, on folklore was, was one of my favorite words. Um, incandescent, which is on the, the song um, Ivy. Um, that's one that I really like. Just sort of the ones that sound pretty when you say them and, and they also mean something that's interesting. Um, the fans have a really amazing inside joke where they, they're like, what, like the, the starter kit for listening to folklore evermore. And it's just a picture of a dictionary. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> they're like, they're like, Taylor, we needed to look up 300 different words. <laughs> it is like Taylor Swift bingo. It's like, bingo, we got that one in there. That's I'm great. Sorry. But, um, no, it, it all adds up to, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, this kind of really immersive world. And you use geography a lot on these two albums too. You know, Coney Island being a very, very visceral image. I've been there. I know what you're referring to when you go there. The idea of that very foggy, lonely, the, you know, the fairground ride is shut down. The whole thing feels like the end of a golden era. Um, and Matt Berninger's Burning, uh, uh, verse on that is just unbelievable, but he didn't write it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was writing it as if I were Matt. So, um, wow, you did a great so job. It, What's the line in there? What's the line Thank in there? You. Do you miss the rogue who coaxed you into paradise and left you there? Will you forgive my soul when you're too wise to trust and too old to care? <laughs> Okay, so what's it like when you're writing? I'm so writing... glad you like that one. That just, <sighs> that one was, I, I'm a huge fan of The National. I love the way they do that sort of downbeat, sometimes self-loathing, reflective, just cut right to the heart of the matter. Um, that lyricism, it, you know, it's why I'm such a fan of the band. And when we had an idea that that Matt could, could sound really amazing on this, um, that was kind of the perspective I was coming from was like a male, a male perspective of regret or guilt after life, after a lifetime of, of, um, of a pattern of behavior. Um, and I'd been kind of touching on sort of things like that on the song Tolerate It, where there's this, you know, person who's on one side of the relationship who's felt like they've just, their partner's been there, but they haven't been there. They've been there, but they're just sitting next to each other eating breakfast. They haven't, they haven't been there. 
So writing Matt's part was really fun. I really loved writing We Were Like the Mall Before the Internet. It was the one place to be. Yeah. Like, it was. It was the place to be. And I was trying to reflect on the Coney Island visual of a place where thrills were once sought, you know? A place where once it was all electricity and magic and um, now the lights are out and and you're looking at it thinking, what did I do? I also really liked having him say happy birthday in the song where he's standing in the hallway with a big cake, happy birthday. And I knew I was going to release it on my birthday week, so... <laughs> a little personal birthday wish from Matt Berninger for you on your birthday yeah, week. No, but it's I got, great. I but actually you... got my favorite lead singer of my favorite band to wish me happy birthday. So <laughs> that's the real win. You talk about tolerate it. You talk about no body, no crime, loyalty, the idea of being loyal to your own emotions. Also loyalty being, I would say, based on what we know about you being it's something that's very important to you that loyalty is an incredibly important character trait to you. Probably the most important character trait. Yeah. It requires some tough conversations. And, and I think about a song like Tolerate It, and we've all seen our friends go through this, continue to stay in situations where it's not good for their health and they can't see it. Are you the kind of person that's capable to do that out of loyalty to, to speak to your friends and say, look, you know, this isn't working for you? I think that it's probably not my place to say that unless they come to me and confide in me and say, you know, I need to vent, I need to talk. You have to kind of give people the space to learn lessons in their own time. Um, I've learned that, you know, the messenger often gets shot. And if you talk a bunch of shit about your friend's boyfriend, like they're definitely gonna get back together. And then you're the one who, who they, they form a united front and you're the one that's on, on the outside of it. So I, I try really hard to just kind of be patient and listen to friends. And if they want to talk shit, we talk shit. And, but it's, it's, you have to know that people are going to make decisions based on their heart and their feelings. And, and like, if that doesn't match up with the way that you see the situation objectively, you've got to, you've got to take it, take it as a case by case situation and just try to be a good friend. Cause we're all human and we're all kind of learning lessons at, in the weirdest time facing humankind 2020. True, true. The song Happiness, again, one of the best best songs on Evermore. And there's a great line in there where you talk a little bit about not being ready to reinvent yourself yet. You're not there. You haven't identified who you need to become. I, I guess you're just really content in this place. And then with, I just applied it to the songwriting process and to where you were at your life. You said you woke up feeling like this was coming to an end to some degree this morning. Do you feel like the world is now starting to catch up to you again and that this wonderful kind of magical moment is going to change shape? Well, that's that's very perceptive of you because that that song was the last song that I wrote on Evermore. So I think that line specifically was, I haven't, I haven't met the new me yet. In the context of the relationship song, I was writing trying to channel sort of my friends who have gotten out of very, very long, impactful, life-altering relationships and saying, how do I pack this up? How do I put this in a box and put it in my car and drive away? Um, and what did I leave there? So from, from that perspective, it goes to, I haven't met the new me yet, you know, the person I'm going to have to become in order to get over this. This person who's going to have to have new hobbies and fill their time with new things other than you. In the second verse, it says, I hope she'll be a beautiful fool who takes my spot next to you. And I, I have, you haven't met the new me yet, meaning you haven't met the person who's going to replace me yet. If 
but I know you're going to. So then in the third verse, it goes to, I haven't met the new me yet, but I think she'll give you that, meaning I think she's going to forgive you, and I think she's going to give you that green light to move ahead with your life and to know that I'm okay. But in my, in my, there's another meaning to the phrase, which is that I have no idea what comes after this, and I truly, truly have no plan, and I'm okay with that. It does feel like this is it for a bit, um, but I don't know what that means, and I don't know. <laughs> It's it's exactly, the, the phrase is exactly what I mean. I have no idea what happens next. There's a couple of songs on this album that take us into your family history that prove not only to be fantastic stories, but clearly very personal, very emotional, and just beautifully told. Um, and one of those is called Marjorie, which is, you know, for anyone who has lost a member of their family and felt like, there was something unresolved in terms of wisdom or experience or time spent because we take time for granted. We really do as people until it's too late or we lose it. What was the experience like writing that song? The experience writing that song was really surreal because, you know, I, I was kind of a, a wreck at times writing it. I would sort of break down sometimes. Um, it was really hard to actually even sing it in the vocal booth without sounding like I had sort of a a break because it just was really emotional. I think that one of the hardest forms of regret to sort of work through is the regret of being so young when you lost someone that you didn't have the perspective to learn and appreciate who they were fully. You know, you didn't have that that sort of, you know, I'd open up my grandmother's closet and she had beautiful dresses from the 60s. I wish I'd asked her where she wore every single one of them. Yeah. So things like that. She was a singer and and she, my mom will look at me so many times a year and say, God, you just, you're just like her. When I'll, you know, some mannerism that I don't recognize as being anyone other than mine. And it's really hard, that, that thing, because parents, they hand that down to you as a gift. That's a very common thing to say about family members. It's ultimately a gift. It's like you remind me of your, your, you know, your grandmother or whatever. But it, what it does is it continues to pique your interest in why. I can't get an answer why, really, because they're not here for me to find that out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, she, she died when I was 13. And um, she died almost, I think it was when I was on a trip to Nashville to try and make it and to try to hand out my demo CD to record labels and things like that. So there were pretty insane coincidences like that. And, um, you know, I've always felt that thing, like I've always just sort of felt like, like she was seeing, um, seeing, seeing this, you know, cause we have to sort of do that. But one of the things about this song that kind of um, still rips me apart when I listen to it is that she's singing with me on this song. How did that happen? My mom found a bunch of her old records bunch of old vinyls of her singing opera and I sent them to Aaron and he added them to the song and wow. so it says you know if I didn't know better I think you were singing to me now and it then you hear her you hear Marjorie actually saying my grandmother and it just it's it's moments like that on the record that just make you feel like your whole heart is in this whole thing that you're doing it's it's all of you that you put into these things memories are uh, a significant part of this this body of work, the idea of memories and what they mean to you. And also, as we said at the beginning, closure to create new ones. 
you know, mm-hmm. and you talked about you talked about time and coincidence and things. The biggest misconception about you, and we spoke about this last time we spoke, was that there's this controlling side to you. There's a difference between ambition or wanting to do something right and control. But my point is that is that you actually your life is filled with coincidence. It's filled with fate. Yeah. It's filled with timing, isn't it? Yes, and I, I, never more so than with the process of these two albums. Honestly, this is one of those things where I've kind of had to just sort of throw out any playbook I had. You know, I you you just in times like these when everything is uncertain and everything changes in your world. I guess I just sort of took it as an opportunity to embrace the fact that even if you think you have control in normal times, that's an illusion. If you're making stuff, put it out. If people need music and you've made music, put it out. You know, there was a time in the beginning of the process where I was like, I will wait till January when things are looking more normal, then I will put out folklore. And I was like, that's my old brain. That's my old brain thinking that there's any way that I can control this. And, you know, humans do need to have some sort of strategy when they go into putting out, you know, music or doing any business whatsoever. But as much as that has an ability to fall by the wayside, it did with this because there was no way to make it and feel in control. You can't You've got to just let fate do what it's going to do with something like this. And and I do talk to Aaron and Jack about this a lot because we do feel sort of like this was a whirlwind. We don't understand it. Our logical brains don't comprehend it. Um, and we know it's, you know, you guys make albums. Of course, you put out albums all the time, whatever. But this this feels different for us. It does. It feels like something that will affect our the rest of our lives um, and the way that we make art and and not being too precious. We we actually really weren't very precious about this. We we weren't too picky or or oh it has to be everything has to be perfect. It's like no. Uh nothing's going to be perfect right now. Let's how does make it feel? music that yeah, how does it feel? And um I'm so happy that people welcomed it into their lives the way that they did. So if the album has to start with Willow, it has to end somewhere and it ends with Evermore. And a lot has already been made because your fans, we are so engaged in your writing and the themes and the narrative of that particular song, but you wrote it and I'd love to know why it ends these, you know, this, this body of work. Well, there were there were this sort of a double meaning to the months that are mentioned and the feelings that are mentioned. Um, one of the meanings is that um, we were, I wrote this song and these lyrics when uh, we were coming up to the election and I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so almost, I was almost preparing for the worst to happen and trying to see some sort of glimmer at the, at the, at the end of the tunnel and, and the last verse, you know, the song is, it goes through walking through the forest barefoot in the middle of winter or standing on a balcony and letting the, the icy wind just hit you and you're catching your death. And, and then in the last chorus, it, the person goes inside and finally is warm and finally is safe. It's about sort of um, the process of finding hope again. But it also reflected back to um, an experience that I had that was pretty life altering when I went through like a bunch of bad stuff in 2016, like July, November, all those times were just sort of taking it day by day to get through, trying to find some trying to find a glimmer of hope, all of that. So I was coming from both of those perspectives and we wrote it exactly the same way we did Exile, where Joe wrote the piano, 
I based the vocal melody on the piano and we sent it to Justin, who then added that bridge. It, and Joe had written the piano part so that it, the tempo speeds up and it changes. It, the music completely changes to a different tempo in the bridge. Um, and Justin really latched onto that and just 100% embraced it and wrote this beautiful sort of the clutter, the clutter of all your anxieties in your head and they're all speaking at once. And he, I, we got the bridge back and then I wrote this narrative of um, when I was shipwrecked, I thought of you, you know? that sort of thing where there was this beacon of hope and then in the end you realize the pain wouldn't be forever that it you know it could get better so that was why i wanted to end it there but we also have two bonus tracks that are coming out um that are a second ending which i'm excited about i know you love a second ending taylor which we all do as well i love that yeah. um <laughs> Well, I got to ask. I got to ask this question because at some point, the the hope is that the doors open up again, and we get to experience this as a community, and we get to see you perform and and put on these amazing shows. And there's something really beautiful about these these two albums existing in their own skin and not having to put on costumes every night. But there's obviously going to be a desire, I'm sure, to play them, and there definitely is for us to hear them. You've got these this amazing team around you, these players, these collaborators. Can you see a time when you could you could pull this family together and go and play some shows, even just a select group of shows. Wow. That is one of our daydreams that we talk about often, but it's not a plan. The conversations happen between me, Aaron, and Jack, and doing doing the Long Pond studio sessions, it just made us want to play music like that more. It just made us want to, um, you know, start a band together. Um, and Justin, I know, talks to Aaron about it a lot too, about just like, We've got to we've got to play together. We've got to play this music together because we've loved singing it. I was actually talking to Marcus Mumford about it too because he sang backup vocals on Cowboy Like Me, and he was like, "We gotta we gotta have a band. We've got to do this." So I think everybody who's involved, you know, the the Heim girls are my best friends, and we have. It's weird. We always end up at parties where there's a stage and people are like, "Go play something, play something," and so we've played live together so many times. We've been on tour together, but this is actually the first album where. Esty, Alana, Danielle, and I have actually collaborated on a song. And so, you know, these are all people I love. That's the reason why the daydream feels very feasible, because I, I would play with these people forever. What do you play with Haim at parties? I gotta ask, because I'm friends with them as well. What do you play with Haim at parties? What do you play? Do you play covers? What do you play? Well, when we were at um, the SNL 40th anniversary party, they had a band up there on stage and uh, Jimmy Fallon had the mic and he was like, somebody's got to get up and play. And so um, he saw us in the crowd, pointed at us. And I was like, I think it was established that Shake It Off is three chords over and over and over again. So I was just like, <laughs> I was like, A minor C, G. Like, um, uh, and, and so, you know, we played then. We've also done like we had a party once where we would um, where we were the house band and we would just like, if somebody wanted to sing karaoke, we would just really quick chart out the song and play whatever song they wanted to. And they, it was like a karaoke machine. So we've had a lot of fun. What was the worst cover that you did that night when you guys couldn't chart it out and it just fell apart at the seams? Um, it wasn't bad in the sense that we didn't know the song, but we did do like sort of a disco version of Under the Sea by from The Little Mermaid that I think is would be filed as one of the least expected ones from the evening. <laughs> um, 
so much closure now. And and you, you yourself said you woke up this morning feeling this. I can't remember what word you used, but you used a brilliant way to describe it. Can you remember how you described how you felt this morning when you woke up? It was like either serenity or or like relief or conclusion or serenity is a great one relief conclusion they're all great ones so the last the last question for now is if the last decade was just success and pace and controversy and and irrelevant <laughs> you know t- tumultuousness and all this stuff wrapped up in into it into a decade right what is what does it feel like looking forward now that you've had this year to be able to collect your thoughts put them into music and, and and come through the end of this year looking forward? What does it feel like? I have absolutely no idea what uh, the next decade holds. And I think that's kind of something I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep that like it is because I was always such a planner and such a, such a list maker and lists of dreams and goals and things I wanted to do. And um, I think my new list will be like places I want to see in the world, adventures I want to have, experiences I want to have things I want to learn. Um, I think that'll be what the list looks like. Cause you know, there's always going to be a list. It's me, you know, but it'll be lists of, uh, in, in quarantine, my list uh, was, I decided to start trying to cook everything that I had always loved to eat, but never been able to cook. So there's always a list. It's been great to uh, to connect with you on this. A sincere congratulations from everyone at Apple Music and everyone who subscribes, who loves your music and streams your music and, you know, we're so excited for what's to come. But right now, just to live in this in this moment, for you to be the Apple Music Songwriter of the Year is so richly deserved and, and we're really happy. I'm really grateful and I'm, I'm so thankful to everyone who listens and, and also everybody um, just on your platform who is so creative and, and believes in artists and lifts us up and supports us. And that includes you. So thank you so much um, for everything and for always being a good friend and a great person to talk to and a great person uh, who listens. I know you've heard all this a million times because everyone loves you, but I hope you have a really great holiday season and and um, it's much appreciated. Thank you, Taylor. Be safe, be well, have a great holiday and uh, to the future. Thank you. Bye. Taking us deeper into the world of folklore and evermore, the incredible Taylor Swift, Apple Music's Songwriter of the Year for 2020 and one of the final conversations on the interview series this year with the big one still to come. Make sure you subscribe, add a rating or a comment. Thanks for checking them out. Appreciate it.